Let's talk with CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. This week, she's reporting on the cost of living adjustments that were announced for Social Security benefits. And the way she sees it, these last couple of years have been really generous to Social Security recipients. If you look at 2022, it was 5.9%. And this year, the cost of living adjustment for 23 was 8.7%. The way the government makes these uh, determinations is it's it's very factual. They look at the consumer price index. They look through the third quarter of the year. They compare it with the previous year's third quarter. Boom, they have a number. And drumroll, please, it will be 3.2% for 2024. That is because the general pace of inflation has come down over the past year. Now, even at that rate... Can the government really afford this? I keep hearing that unless something's done to reform Social Security, the payments will actually have to start uh, dropping automatically. Yeah, it's kind of a wild thing when you look at Social Security because it's not a particularly difficult problem to solve. And here's why. We, we know the number of people who are working. We know the number of people who will be claiming Social Security. And you're right that around the year, let's call it 2035 or so, um, the government will only have enough people working to pay for 75% of the promised benefits. Okay. That sounds terrible, especially for someone who might be turning uh, and getting their 60s at that time, me. Um, but what we know is that there are very easy ways to fix this. There's kind of only three variables, right? There, you can raise the Social Security retirement age. Right now it's you know 66 or 67, depending on the year of your birth. And you can say, okay, we're going to make that 70, 72, 75. There's a lot of pushback on raising the actual um, number, the year of, of retirement for Social Security. Because if you're doing manual labor, that's kind of a heavy lift. It's one thing for you and me talking into a microphone. We could say, yeah, I could do it till I'm 75. But if you're someone who's like a maintenance worker, that's a tough one. So what are the two other choices? You can raise what's called the Social Security wage base. That is the amount of money on which Social Security taxes are levied. About $165,000 right now. You could say, oh, well, you know, we'll raise it to $250,000. You got to pay more taxes if you make up to $250,000. Or, and or, you could raise the actual intra- the uh, actual rate of taxation that both the worker and the employer pay. Now, This is arithmetic, gang. This is not hard to solve. So some combination of those three variables will fix the entire Social Security problem. Yeah. Of course, Congress can't even uh, (laughs) find somebody in whose hands to put the gavel. So, yeah, I mean, well, you know, what's fascinating is when I look back at the history of Social Security cost of living adjustments, I thought it was fascinating to to learn that, you know, it it was amazing. Social Security, which started in 1935, never had a cost of living adjustment. It it, it took four decades for Congress to stay. Wait a minute. We got to stay out of this, which, thank God, can you imagine if we had to wait for Congress to come together to give us a Social Security cost of living adjustment? It would be insane. We're hearing from CBS's Jill Schlesinger. One thing I want to ask was for young people starting out who are looking to invest as the stock market continues to fluctuate. You see banks offering certificates of deposit, CDs that pay up to a 6% return, which on most days is better than the stock market. So what's the best move there? I would say if you need your money within the next two years, absolutely. This is a brilliant idea. You can have just a series of CDs and you can build what's called a CD ladder. Here's the problem. Let's take the average, let's say uh, you know, you're a 35-year-old and you say, I'm going to keep doing that. 
that's fine until interest rates start coming down. And usually you don't realize that till after the fact. And most likely what would happen is if you pulled all of your money out of your retirement account, let's say at an IRA, and you said, I'm just going to buy CDs with it. And then you are no longer invested for the long term. And what you will likely see is that as those rates come down, the markets will take off uh, ahead of you. You'll miss it. And now you are basically trying to time the market. So if you know you need your money within the next two years, three years, yeah, sure. Lock in CD rates. It's amazing. But if you think that you're going to get a 5% rate guaranteed for the next 30 or 40 years, not going to happen. And so that's why you're left with a, a terrible choice, which is I have to give up the security of knowing what I'm going to earn and go plunge myself into the world of volatility of being a long-term investor, which is not a comfortable place for a lot of people. Yeah. And on the latest crisis gripping the world in the Middle East, uh, unquestionably a huge humanitarian catastrophe, does it have any economic effects, potential economic effects that worry you? Well, I mean, I think that, first of all, it is strange to see that there's been a very muted market reaction. Okay, because usually you would say, oh, in a world of uncertainty and war, you would see big moves in the markets. So the complacency worries me a little bit. Um, Obviously, the price of oil could be impacted dramatically. And if this escalates, we are talking about a larger conflict and there are other countries involved, then it could really get dangerous out there. I think that I guess that the that that um, investors may be looking at this and saying, well, if it does get bigger, this is sort of the jaded investor, okay? Let's say it expands. That would be bad for growth. And then the Fed would be done. And maybe they'll lower interest rates next year. That's kind of the jaded view. CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Right now, we'll get an update on the auto worker strike from WWJ Auto reporter Jeff Gilbert. I called up earlier this morning and asked him about the big three automakers, specifically Ford, where it appeared last week that a deal was close. Everybody thought that uh, Ford was actually closest to the agreement, but uh, it seems they're not close enough. And the UAW wanted to send a message to Ford, and they shut down their biggest plant. So the strike is now past the one-month mark, and i got to say there is no end in sight at this point. I know it's expanded to uh, truck plants now. Uh, are still the same, still the same issues, pay and these uh, different uh, employee tiers? Uh, Those are issues, but a trickier issue is what to do about workers at battery plants, EV battery plants. GM has apparently agreed with the union that those workers will be covered under what's called the master agreement. Ford says we can't do that because we haven't even built those plants yet, and we're building the plants with partners, and we've got to see what they're going to say. Hmm. So they're saying they don't have a handle on what the the labor costs at the battery plants are even going to be? At this particular point, I don't think they want to commit to higher labor costs at those plants. Now, the union, of course, says, hey, look, GM has made a promise. We want you to make a, a similar promise. But the reality is GM hasn't even commented publicly on what its promise is. So this is a very sticky thing when you're talking about pay and benefits for people who haven't even been hired yet. So for people who are in the market for a car, how is this affecting the market? I mean, the the, the strike has not affected to Toyota, Subaru, car makers like that. So do we see uh, an overall increase in prices ahead? You know, when you talk about increases in prices, we're already seeing that because we're seeing fewer and fewer discounts. So it is de facto a price increase. So far, the uh, the 
Sales numbers for September didn't show any impact. Experts say October will show a slight impact, but if the strike starts going well into November past Thanksgiving or something like that, then you'll see significant shortages of, of domestic products. Yikes. And so that, and that, that leads to higher car prices. That could lead to higher inflation. The Fed could look at that and say, oh, I guess we've got to keep interest rates higher. Could this uh, start a cascade of uh, interest penalties? Absolutely. It's a little early to talk about that, but uh, when you're talking about rising prices, again, with the lack of discounting and the lack of incentives, you already have higher prices because of the strike. CBS's Jeff Gilbert from WWJ. Jeff, thank you. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Is it true that your iPhone can make you fat? I've seen studies going back 10 years that have that headline. So let's check it out with the doctor. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So tell me about the latest research on this, Dr. Cohen. Right. So there is some new research. Uh, In this case, it's actually done on rodents. And I usually don't love to use rodent models or animal models when we talk about medical things because you never know exactly where it's going to lead. But I think in this case, uh, it's it's worth talking about. Uh, But the presumption here is that by looking at your phone at night or looking at a screen like an iPad or something like that, that the wavelength from the light will interfere with your normal sleep-wake cycle or circadian rhythm. And what what are circadian rhythms? Circadian rhythms are physical, mental, behavioral changes that normally follow a 24-hour cycle. And it's a natural process that responds primarily to light, you know, the sun or whatever sort of light. In this case, it can be artificial light and, and also to dark. And it really, it affects most living things. It affects humans, it affects animals, it affects plants, and it's even been shown to affect microbes. So it's universal throughout biology. If these sleep-wake cycles or our circadian rhythm gets disrupted, bad things can happen. We end up with with what some people call uh, circadian misalignment. And that's when our internal body clocks are out of sync with the external light dark cues that normally exist. And this is because, and this is where the research comes in, it throws off our cortisol levels. And cortisol is a hormone that's released by our adrenal glands uh, in the early mornings each day when we wake up and we're exposed to light. And it's what turns on our light cycle and then sort of in this case, starts our 24-hour cycle or our circadian rhythm. And what we've known for a long time is that people who are, for example, shift workers, uh, people who work, uh, you know, who stay up all night for other reasons or whatnot, that their circadian rhythms get out of cycle and that they have a tendency to gain weight. And this has been shown over and over again. But what this most recent research showed, and this was in animals, is that they actually uh, injected rodents with um, with uh, cortisol-like hormones, and they looked at their uh, activity and when they ate. And they found out the rats whose hormone injections were actually in sync with their normal circadian rhythm or their normal light-dark cycle ate 88% of their daily food intake during their active phase of the day and only ate the other 12% during their inactive phase. 
However, they created a second group that they called a jet lag group. And these were rodents whose hormones were injected out of sync with their uh, light-dark cycle or out of sync with their circadian rhythm. And it turns out that they ate 54% of their daily calories during their inactive phase without having an increase of activity during this time. So what does that tell us? It tells that during a period of inactivity, you're eating most of your food, whereas when your circadian rhythm is normally intact, you're eating the majority of food while you're active. And so, you know, the whole notion of calories in, calories out, you want to be taking your calories in at the same time as you're having calories out. But if you're eating when you're sitting around doing nothing or doing a minimal amount, well, then these are excess calories and this is what can result in weight gain over time. Because it's releasing this hormone, then the effect, then it's it's involuntary, basically. By, by exposing yourself to this light, your body starts ordering you to, to eat too much. That's exactly right. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, artificial light, night lights, you know, and, you know, social jet lag can confuse our internal body clocks, our, our circadian rhythms. And it does. It affects our mood, our sleep, our alertness, and our appetite. Interestingly, there was a, a poll done by the National Sleep Foundation back in 2011 that found that 9 out of 10 Americans reported using an electro electronic device before bed, with 72% of teenagers and 67% of young adults using their smartphones uh, before bed. But since that study was carried out, the percentage of Americans who now own smartphones has more than doubled. And so now, I mean, it's not clear, there hasn't been a more recent poll, but th there are clearly many, many more people who are going to bed with their phones at their, at their side. And actually people are sort of using it uh, like a device, like, like reading a book was used to fall asleep. The problem is it doesn't work in the same way as a book because the light from the phone stimulates your retina and, and causes uh, your body to be confused as to what time of day it is. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Thanks, Dr. Cohen. Thanks, Dave. We now head to Jerusalem where CBS's Linda Gradstein is stationed to uh, cover the violence there. I called her up earlier this morning, and as we enter into week two of this crisis between Israel and Hamas, the government of Israel has given a warning that they intend to invade Gaza, so get out now. And I asked Linda whether she has heard any evidence of when this invasion might actually start. I mean, the fact is that Israel gave a 24-hour deadline about 48 hours ago. Um, and obviously the United States has been involved in uh, trying to create some sort of a ceasefire, some sort of a humanitarian corridor into Gaza. Um, but the fact is that the Rafah border crossing, which was supposed to reopen today uh, to allow both American citizens to leave uh, to Egypt and allow aid in, did not reopen. So it's not clear uh, if there'll be a ground invasion or when there will be a ground invasion. Now, the Rafah crossing opens into Egypt. How many how many evacuees would we be talking about? And does Egypt have the capacity to take care of all those people? Well, you know, uh, you know, but technically it's, you know, Egypt can let in whoever it wants. But one of the reasons that it hasn't opened apparently is because they're afraid that, uh, you know, people will just kind of run, run into Egypt. Now, Israel has told more than a million Palestinians to leave Gaza, to leave northern Gaza. There's not really anywhere for them to go. Uh, hospitals have said 
that they can't handle it, um, they can't move people. So uh, everything is kind of on hold with fears of uh, a growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Now, Israel's stated purpose is to eliminate Hamas. How do they know that members of Hamas wouldn't just sneak out during any evacuation? Right. That's part of the problem. Uh, Israel says that its evaluation is that Hamas uh, leaders are hunkered down in bunkers and would probably stay there. Uh, but I think that's obviously one of the issues that they're kind of dealing with now is how do they make sure exactly about that. And in terms of the discussions going on back here at home, there there seems to be a competing basically competing storylines uh storyline number one innocent palestinians need to be evacuated right away but number two palestinians elected hamas in 2006 therefore there are no innocent palestinians what about that right there does seem to be that um uh you know two things going on at the same time uh you know 2006 was a long time ago and uh you know palestinians elected hamas partly because they were frustrated with the palestinian authority i don't think it necessarily says much about whether or not they support the hamas ideology um but definitely the feeling in israel is the uh second one that you said that there really are no innocent palestinians and that you know hamas has responsibility for this hamas has cars it could evaluate people it could release the hostages there are the american uh, israel has confirmed that there are 199 hostages women and children being held by hamas who were abducted 10 days ago some of them are wounded you know we're talking about babies here we're talking about elderly people so i think that uh you know israel says that the key is in the hands of hamas and that they are the ones who are preventing any kind of a humanitarian pollution we're hearing from cbs's linda gradstein who's uh, reporting from jerusalem and i asked her about this other scenario i mean what would solve this without israel having to invade well if there was a Palestinian revolt, a revolt of the innocent Palestinians against the guilty ones who are members of Hamas. Is there any inkling of something like that happening? Well, that's certainly what Israel is hoping, but I'm not sure that that's really possible. I mean, people are uh, poor, they're frustrated, they're terrified. I, I don't really see how likely that is, and I'm not sure who's really there to replace Hamas, even if there is. Right. In terms of what's happening uh, on the northern border with uh, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, are they actively trying to open up a new front in this war? And do they have the active support of Iran or is uh, Iran just sitting on its hands or what? Well, that's exactly the question. Um, I mean, uh, so far uh, there have been clashes with Hezbollah. But it's been fairly uh, limited. I think that, you know, both Israel and Hezbollah know uh, kind of what's within certain red lines, what's outside of them. Uh, there have been uh, there was an Israeli killed yesterday in a direct uh, rocket hit. It's not clear to me if Hamas wants an all out war with Israel, um, you know, and Israel says it's prepared to fight on two fronts if needed. Uh, interestingly, by the way, Hamas about half an hour ago said that uh, that, uh, sorry, Iran said that Hamas would release all 199 hostages if Israel would stop its bombing on Gaza. 
Now, until now, Hamas has said the only release of the hostage will, hostages will be in exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, which is obviously much more complicated than just a ceasefire. So uh, Hamas has not commented on that report. They've not confirmed it. Israel has not confirmed it. But it is a report from the Iranian foreign ministry. I see. So there is some movement. And what about Saudi Arabia in this whole equation? We were on the verge of some sort of agreement with them. Have they issued any statements? No, they have not issued any statements. In fact, the Arab world has been very quiet on this. Um, uh, Egypt, though, has been playing a role behind the scenes. You have to remember that Egypt was in control of Gaza until Israel took it over, um, and many Palestinians in uh, Gaza have ties with family and things in Egypt. So uh, Israel, Egypt is definitely trying to play a role uh, to prevent this conflict from spreading. Okay, any guesses on when we, uh, when Israel gives the command? No, I mean, it's, they're obviously preparing for it, and Israeli officials are saying it could be any time now. Uh, Israel called up 330 reservists. It's the largest call-up in Israel's history, uh, and, you know, tens of thousands of Israeli troops are massed uh, just outside of Gaza. Tanks, there were reports that I haven't seen confirmed that a small Israeli strike force did go into Gaza and managed to recover some of the bodies of the uh, people that Hamas had taken of, of a few of the hostages. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, Israel knows that once it starts the ground invasion, it's, it, it, you know, it's easy to get into a war. It's not always easy to get out of it. So I think that they're, you know, taking their time to prepare it and not rushing. CBS's Linda Gradstein with the latest from Jerusalem. Linda, thank you. Thank you. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Every few months, a group of Massachusetts friends gathers in an unsuspecting restaurant to share a meal and surprise their server with a giant tip. They call themselves the 1000 Breakfast Club although their latest tip was actually $1,300. Tulio Maldonado, who served the group of 10 in IHOP last month, was shocked when the group counted out all those $100 bills right in front of him. One, two, three. Richard Brooks is the man behind the 1000 Breakfast Club and tells ABC affiliate WCVB. The first time we gave away 1300 the second time 1600 this time 1300 Brooks says he got the idea from his brother, who heard about a similar group in California. We kind of do it for ourselves, too, but the benefit is we get to give this guy the money. He's going to pay his bills. The last person was going to buy his mother a hearing aid. It's, it's, you get a really good feeling out of it. And you don't need to be a millionaire or a famous celebrity to make somebody's day. You know, I'm pretty sure this guy will never, never forget this. When Brooks organized the club, most of the members didn't know each other, but... Now they're friends. Jeffrey Paris says... I'm a teacher. We have um, a dental hygienist that heard about this and just wanted to join in. And, you know, when you add us all together, it, it turns into quite a big amount of money. We know what's going to happen to him, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It's like being Santa Claus. The 1000 Breakfast Club makes a point of posting their surprise gifts on social media, hoping to inspire others to start their own breakfast club and spread the generosity. Oh, what an idea. And now from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9 o'clock, here he is, G. Scott. How about those Huskies? Man, how about those Huskies? How about those? They got it done with a huge, huge win, which I believe... 
I'm going to go ahead and say it's probably one of the best games in that has happened in college football so yeah. far this season. Even I enjoyed you, it. You, <laughs> then you know it was good, yeah. right? Uh, two top ten teams going at it. Uh, I, I'll say this. I, going into the uh, halftime, when Dan Lanning, the head coach, decided not to kick a field goal during that time, considering that they were going to get the ball back in the beginning of the third quarter, I actually took to Twitter and said, Dan Lanning just gave the Huskies a gift. Yeah. And I and I believe and of course they lost by 3. Yeah. But again, shout out to the Huskies. They played very well and especially that last moment, that last drive by Michael Penix Jr. It was incredible. I thought the Pac-12 was supposed to be a moribund league. It looked pretty good yesterday. <laughs> that, Pac- that Pac-12 is looking <laughs> real real good. So no doubt about it. Different story uh, for the Seahawks, though. Yeah. Well, you know, what was frustrating about the Seahawks' loss is the Seahawks dominated them. It was 381 to 214 yards. Uh, excuse me, 241 yards. Uh, it came down to the Seahawks had 25 first downs. The, they had 14. The Seahawks got to the red zone five times, but only converted 10 points out of that, actually getting to the five-yard line twice and getting no points. I think it was the worst game that Geno Smith has played as a Seahawk. Sometimes I wonder if his ankle, because he kind of hurt his ankle in the the Monday night game, I wonder if that was a factor. I was talking to KJ about that, and I was asking him if sometimes injury, even though you're out there, you're playing through it, is it on your mind? And he says absolutely so. So that Seahawks game really, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, that Seahawks game sucked. It really did. It really messed up my day. I ended up eating Biscoff cookies. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I had. I know uh, you love those cookies. I had, and I had rice cakes with barbecue sauce on it. I was wow. going through it. Colleen, where you at, girl? I'm oh. right here. I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm going chuckling through, I was going. I was going through it, Colleen. Your boy Rice had. cakes with barbecue sauce? I've never heard of that. That is a sad mood, my friend. <laughs> has, has there ever been a time that you're kind of sad and you've had some yeah. sad food choices that you're embarrassed to admit? I'm just the one that's going to tell everybody I had rice cakes with barbecue sauce. That sounds normal to me. What? Yeah, no, Dave. Dave, you have some weird food combinations as well. I would use. I would. I would have put peanut butter on a rice cakes, but whatever. So here's the thing. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Can I share something with y'all that I'm going through right now? I'm, I'm kind of mad about. Please, it. please. Mm-hmm. So I love peanut butter, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes there has been times where my wife's like, "Oh, did you? Is peanut butter gone? Oh yeah, I did peanut butter. So right now in our pantry, there is peanut butter. That she hid in the back. I don't blame her. And I'm mad about that. Yeah. And I haven't, because I haven't said anything to her. And I'm pretending like I don't see the peanut butter. So you said that you usually like uh, peanut butter on your rice cakes. So do I. But yesterday I settled for the barbecue sauce because she has the peanut butter hidden in the pantry. Look, first of all, the the reason she does that is because you violated one of the, the top rules of having peanut butter. You always alert your significant other before you eat the final half inch of the peanut butter. Smart man. Right? That way she can go out and buy the new peanut butter without having to hide it. Or you can go out and buy it. Or you could buy it. That's right. You finish <laughs> if you're it, using up the last bit of the peanut butter, you, you should go it. buy more. Same thing yeah. with yogurt, by the way, in case you're, you know, into yogurt. But why do we... Whoa, 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 whoa. 
But why, Colleen, do we have to play this game of hiding the peanut butter in the pantry? And somebody's listening. You mm-hmm. can't be trusted around a jar of peanut butter. I do the same thing with my husband and chocolate. I like chocolate, mm-hmm. maybe like a bite of chocolate once a wow. month. If my husband sees a box of chocolates, he'll eat the whole box in one sitting. So I have to hide the chocolate. Somebody's right. li- For all of you that are hiding food, the Colleen's of the world and my wife, <laughs> that, is, that is wrong. No, that is not. wrong to be hiding food. Yes. Yes. It's a tactic. It's like it's like when your hand, the quarterback's hand off the ball, he tries to hide the ball. This so is not a- this is not equality here. Have you ever <laughs> hid food from your wife? Absolutely. Yeah. When it comes to leftover <laughs> Halloween candy, oh yeah, yeah. Otherwise, wow. it's, otherwise it's gone. All right, I'm out of here. G Scott, nine o'clock. It's ridiculous. News Radio. I know. This is Seattle's morning news. As we all know, there's been, I guess you could say, a surplus of uh, criminal activity in the Seattle area lately. And it leads us to wonder, are we raising our kids wrong? Uh, Is there something toxic in the water or is there some other reason? Well, Casey McNerthney, who joins us each Monday from the King County Prosecutor's Office, I took a look at some numbers because the question comes up, how many of the people who are up for a felony here in King County are either outside the county or are from out of state? And Casey, what did you find? We found uh, some pretty surprising results. And this came about because the Seattle Times editorial board asked the same question and said, hey, you know, where where are people coming from? And there's a couple ways you could look at it. One is the last known address box, but that's notoriously unreliable when you see it on on reports that come to us. One, because it just relies on what people say, which may not always be true. Um, and, and then there's many cases where it's not filled in. But what we looked at is we went through every person who was charged with a, a felony crime this summer, so June, July, August of 23, um, and, and looked at, at you know how many of them had out-of-state convictions. And so there were just over 1,200 people, uh, 1,266 people who were charged with felony crimes in King County as adults in June, July, and August. And what we found is that uh, 58% of them had a, a conviction history outside of King County, uh, e- either in a, a nearby county or somewhere in Washington state. And uh, 23% of those defendants had out-of-state convictions. So what does that tell you? It's it's interesting because... and. One caveat is, is you know, for some of the, those folks, it was, you know, a year ago or a few months ago. For some of those, it was several years ago. But it's, 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 it's interesting that that number was higher than we thought it would be. And here's a, a, a clip from David Baker, who's a senior deputy prosecutor and our stats expert in the office. The number of defendants that had out-of-state convictions was particularly surprising. You don't expect 28 28- plus percent uh, or 23 percent if you're looking at the total defendants to have out-of-state convictions just from anecdotal experience but it's fascinating to see that when you dive into the to the background that it, it is you know 23 percent of all of those defendants had an out-of-state conviction the one hard part is is we can't definitively without talking to the defendants uh saying you know find out why exactly are you coming here you know one thing that the times editorial board pointed out is you know as they wrote, as the region's population booms, we should be clear-eyed about the responsibilities that come with being a national destination. You know, and, and so the one good thing, I, th- I think, regardless of where you're from, if you come to King County and you commit a felony crime, we're going to hold you accountable. I think part of it's because if you screw up in some other state, you want to escape your past. And so you look at a map and look up there in the far left corner of the country is this remote place where nobody will ever find me. 
Sure. That's, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. And I think if you look over decades, that that's a reason why a lot of people come out here, whether you are involved in a crime or not. Right. And as long as we're uh, talking about accountability, uh, King County now has 10 trials underway involving uh, murders and uh, assaults. And you have a guilty verdict in one of them. Tell us about that case. This was a case out of West Seattle that happened in 22, in the summer of uh, 2022. And it's a case the prosecutors described as a multi-location violent crime spree. And this was handled by Albany Burns and James Daniels, who were two excellent prosecutors out of our office. And, you know, what, what happened here is, is it started as an, as an attempted robbery in an alley where the defendant was armed with a pistol grip shotgun. He pointed that at a victim and then uh, hit him with it, then drove to a nearby encampment. He entered an RV and shot another victim in the, in the stomach with a shotgun. Uh, and it, what prosecutors said at the trial is, is that the reason why he survived was because of the excellent emergency trauma doctors at, at Harborview. That's very easily, you know. Uh, and then after that, there was there was another person uh, who was shot, and, and uh, he was shot in the head and was killed. So it was a really a really terribly violent spree. And, and even though, you know, there was a lot of evidence here and it really was available because Seattle police did such quick and thoughtful work to get that evidence and make an arrest within a, a few days and to get that to us, to be able to present in court, there's never a, a guarantee of what's going to happen in a trial, but this went to a jury and he, he was convicted of first degree murder, first degree uh, attempted robbery, attempted murder and a kidnapping, and each of those have a firearm enhancement, which comes with a mandatory sentence on top of what you would normally get. And what was this about? I mean, what was his problem? You know, that's a great question. And I asked uh, the prosecutors on this case, and I know that you would ask that, and there, it, we never got a clear answer in the trial. There are, are there was some speculation on it, but we never got a good answer of why exactly did he do this? What was the motivation? And we, we probably won't ever know, which is the frustrating part. Yeah. Well, I think it's safe to say he'll be going to jail for, uh, for a long time. You also for have a up- long, long time, a long time. Yeah. So, uh, you have an update on this attack on Beacon Hill. This happened on, uh, the light rail. Yeah. September 28th. There was a, there were people who were attacked in an unprovoked uh, assault uh, and, this person who was arrested, there was a 39-year-old man who was arrested uh, just last week. Uh, he was arrested for using a, a claw hammer to, to hurt a couple of those people. And it was, it, what's really scary about this is, is, is how, how violent the assault was. And we brought that up to the first appearance judge when he was in court on Friday and said, this is somebody who should be held on a million dollars bail. And the court agreed. And what's interesting is, is you know, we're not clear what led to that. What's interesting is we're not sure what led to that unprovoked attack. Uh, but like we were talking about earlier, this person does not have a history in King County, but came here from California. So yeah. uh, how long before he's on trial? So we expect to get this case sent to us by Seattle police by Wednesday. If we get it by Wednesday, which we anticipate that we will, we can file charges and then ask a, a, a judge to hold that person as uh, the case moves forward. So we should have an update by Wednesday and uh, we'll keep you posted uh this time next Monday. And again, we we don't know what set him off either. Huh? Yeah, not sure. Although that might come out as the investigation goes on. Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. Thanks a lot, Dave.
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.